On this week's episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I'm interviewing Michael Howard of Atlas Insurance. Michael got his bachelor's in science and risk management insurance and economics from Florida State University. I've got two boys that graduate from FSU. He holds several designations, certified insurance counselor and certified risk manager and certified workers' compensation advisor. And he's got licenses in property, casualty, life and health insurance. But maybe for most important for this, he has a level of expertise in the nonprofit industry. He works with nonprofits. So please join me as we learn a little about risk management in the nonprofit sector with Michael Howard. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Corley. Just wanted to let you know, we are now sending out a weekly, very brief newsletter, tips, tricks, pointers to nonprofit executives. That includes both board members and CEOs, executive directors. If you're interested in receiving this, please go to thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter and you can sign up. Once again, that's thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter. Well, on this week's episode, of the I-501CU, the, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I get to interview a new friend, Michael Howard with Atlas Insurance. Michael and I actually had lunch about a month ago as he was educating me on some of the risks board members faces and nonprofits. I thought, oh man, we got to have this guy on the podcast. So Michael, thank you for joining us. And why don't you share with the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So, um, Michael Howard, um, I'm a husband, father of two boys, um, one of who's two and a half years old right now, the other one's seven months old. Um, I was born and raised here in Sarasota. I'm actually sixth generation here in Sarasota. So uh, grand, great, 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 great grandparents came down on like horse and buggy and had the first toy store on Main Street. Um, so I was brought up around insurance, both my dad and my grandfather. Uh, we're in the insurance industry. My dad still is. Um, my grandpa recently uh, retired. So I've been around uh, insurance my whole life, but I've been here with Atlas um, for about 10 years now. Um, my primary focus is helping nonprofits, churches, schools, and senior healthcare um, with their insurance and risk management programs. And um, though I was kind of brought up in insurance, I fell into this niche specifically. I'm a Christian. Um, I've always been involved in volunteer work throughout high school and college. Um, I was uh, I coached Special Olympics. Um, Post college, I coached Miracle League here in Sarasota. Um, and so, you know, when you start off any type of job, you're doing a lot of cold calls. And so, I called on everybody from auto body shops and contractors to nonprofits and churches, and found churches and nonprofits were generally a lot nicer than other other industries. Uh, you call you cold call on a contractor and you might get thrown out of their office with a few choice words, but you cold call a church and the worst they're going to say is, have you heard of Jesus Christ? So naturally, um, I think if, you, yeah, if you're lucky uh, enough to be able to do so, you start gravitating towards your passion, which my passion has always been helping and serving nonprofits. Um, so today um, I work with nonprofit organizations. The easiest way to think about what we do at Atlas is we're an outsourced risk management team. Um, just like nonprofits outsource their legal, their accounting, um, we're the outsource insurance placement and risk management team. We say our goal is to take the burden of risk management insurance off of the organization's plate so they can focus on achieving their vision and their mission. 
Well, I think that's well stated, Mike, and I appreciate that. Appreciate the story, the story on if you're out, go call, and, call on churches because they're going to be nicer to you than a contractor would now. I, I love that. And and now you fell into this niche, which I thought was really unique uh, when you and I connected. So let, let's take a, a broad perspective of risk in the nonprofit sector. What risk do nonprofit organizations, and of course, specifically boards need to be conscientious about this, but what risk do nonprofit organizations need to be aware of? Sure. Yeah. Um so I think the types of risks are going to be really dependent on what the organization does, right? So a community foundation who gives out grants, they're going to have a whole different set of risks than exposures in an organization who uh, has group homes and adult day programs for persons with disabilities. Um, a botanical gardens or a theater uh, are going to look a lot different than drug detox or supportive living. Um, so maybe the best way to kind of approach it is, you know, um, what risks do all non um, what risks do all nonprofits have um, in common? Um, the easiest way to break it up is kind of the categories from the insurance perspective. Uh, you have first party and third party uh, risks. So first party events being something financially in, that impacts the uh, nonprofit organization. So think like a fire, a hurricane, or theft. The organization's losing money directly, and third-party risks somebody else is affected by your organization's actions, and they suffer a financial loss. You know that normally comes in the form of a lawsuit, like a trip and fall, and an auto accident, you're at fault, or abuse claims. So maybe for the more legally-minded board members out there, the first-party um, risks are uh, indemnify the organization. You know the carrier is going to pay you money. Third-party risks are indemnified. Uh, somebody else is indemnified by the carrier. And this is kind of a higher-level concept for your directors and officers and maybe a conversation for later. Or maybe you have it with your agent because the directors and officers policy kind of is a hybrid between the two of them. Both the board members and the organizations can be indemnified depending on what the state laws and bylaws and the insurance policies dictate. So digress i mean when you look at nonprofit risks and what they're facing it is going to vary um by the organization's operations but you can kind of classify and start thinking about of what affects us directly and then what affects somebody else that we can get sued for now that's the insurance perspective but there's also non-insurance related risks that you really need to consider so um, always say insurance is one method method of risk management. You're ceding a risk to insurance carrier that you can financially absorb yourself. But uh, there's other risks that aren't insurance related. So like think of like mission drift. Think of reputational damage, um, political risk, uh, and uh, changes in funding landscaping for nonprofits that have governmental funding or reimbursements. Uh, economic risk for those nonprofits that primarily rely on private donations. So for the board members listening, um, you know, there's a ton of ways to address those risks. But when you are looking at um, the landscape of risk, don't get solely focused in on those first and third party insurance risks that you might be thinking about. There's plenty of other risks that you should be concerned about that might not be a hurricane or a fire or something like that. Um, in, you always really want to rely on an expert to kind of do those risk audits for you. Um, and for those nonprofits that have already kind of went through and identified those risks, um, and maybe leave you guys with a couple of trends and emerging things to look out for as far as, you know, what uh, nonprofits these days should be uh, um, 
uh, aware of. Um, so first here in Florida, it's no surprise, like the property insurance market is in complete shambles. <laughs> Uh, a lot of nonprofits didn't budget or weren't prepared for the 50 to 100 percent increases they're seeing on their renewals. And it's really not uncommon to see a lot of these nonprofits and carriers not even have the capacity to write the wind insurance at all. Or if they do, it's not financially viable. So uh, I would say a good 50 percent of nonprofits that I'm working with right now are considering or dropping a portion of their wind coverage because it's not financially available. Um, or it's, um, it just doesn't make sense. So as a board member, if you're in this position, you need to do the due diligence and have the supporting documentation analysis that says, hey, this is not the right financial decision. Insurance is just one way we can handle this risk. Instead of paying a half million dollars in a deductible, uh, plus another $300,000 in premium, we're going to put into putting uh, on a new roof insuring up our building. But that due diligence includes, you know, looking at the average wind speeds, what your building construction can hold up to cost benefits analysis. But here in this Florida insurance market, that's one risk that board members and nonprofits really need to be aware of. Um, additionally, in Florida, you know, we've got a, a, a huge issue with high levels of litigation. You know, there were some things that were passed in, in the state to help with the frequency of it, but we're prone to nuclear verdicts, especially auto claims and abuse claims. And nonprofits aren't uh, immune from this. Um, lawyers go after nonprofits just as readily and aggressively as any for-profit business. Um, and capacity for high umbrellas are really tight, especially in the auto. And trying to get excess limits of abuse coverage can be super challenging. Um, another risk that you should be aware of that's a, a big trend is third-party lawsuits. So even if you aren't responsible directly, for somebody's actions, you can still get sued of it. You're leasing a space to a school and the school has an abuse claim. You're gonna get brought into that abuse claim as the owner of the property. Think the Boy Scouts of America. This is what really led the charge there. There's um, multiple billions of dollars of third-party lawsuits that the campgrounds, the churches, people letting the Boy Scouts use those facilities have been brought into it. Even if they're not found negligent for it, they there's still a lot of defense costs that go along with it. So third-party lawsuits, um, making sure your coverage extends out to that. New trend that's kind of emerged that uh, boards need to be aware of. And then last, um, cyber liability. Way more prevalent uh, nowadays, and nonprofits, generally speaking, are way behind the curve for cyber uh, security relative to other industries like banking, financial services, healthcare, where it's regulated by the government. Nonprofits are targeted, and I've seen half a million dollar, quarter million dollar cyber claims. That's a big hit to the budget. Simple cyber liability policies or ongoing cyber training for the employees, things you can do to help mitigate those risks. So that's why I would say, I mean, in summary, when you're looking at the risk for nonprofits, it's, it's organization dependent, but you can think of it in three ways. What affects you? What affects other people? Um, and then um, risks that are not insurance related, like the mission drift, like uh, changes in funding, uh, uh, you know, like reputational damage. So, 
Sure. No, well stated. And, and risk has really become much more complex than uh, maybe your grandfather's insurance company, right? Or even your parents' right. dad's insurance company, as we always use that that saying. And, and this, these are things boards need to be aware of. So let me ask you just some of the basics. Simplify it for us. What are some of the basic types of insurance that nonprofit organizations ought to consider having? Just sure. some of the basics. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, blocking and tackling property, general liability. Auto, if you own autos, and if you don't own autos, hired and not owned auto liability. Obviously, directors and officers insurance, uh, sometimes that's coupled with your employment practices, which is your wrongful termination, discrimination, sexual harassment, wage and hour, HR-related liability, fiduciary liability. Um, if you're a school, a lot of times in that whole management is educators' legal liability. Uh, abuse and molestation, crime, workers' comp, cyber liability, volunteer accident, most likely going to have an umbrella or excess policy. These are the basics that anybody who's doing insurance for nonprofits, they're not going to, to miss. Um, and you should see those, those policies um, uh, in the current insurance programs that, uh, that you have. Some of the more obscure coverages, and but tr newer trending coverages, active shooter. So uh, coverage that bridges the gap between the negligence of the organization when there is an active shooter or a violent event and them not being at fault at all. Catastrophic accident policies for volunteers who get you know, uh, injured more than twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in medical bills. Um, in this insurance environment, deductible buy-downs and parametric insurance to help offset some of the, uh, the risk on the property. Uh, when you're building properties, builder's risk policies. Um, uh, foreign liability, if you have any foreign operations. So those are some of the newer uh, policies that you can see uh, coming out uh, within the, the insurance industry mm -hmm. or translating over to nonprofits. You, that's interesting. And you said something when we were at lunch. It, it, you could have a, I'm, I'm not going to say this correctly. Hopefully you can correct it for the audience. You could have a DNO, ENO, DNO policy. We all say you need to have that. Mm -hmm. But even within those policies, some of the language may or may not protect you. And so you really need to have an expert review the policy so you know what is and is not covered. Just because you have E&O and Dino doesn't give you carte blanche uh, to, to do anything because you may not have the coverage you think. Absolutely. Yeah. And DNO insurance is one of the more complex uh, lines of coverage. Uh, and the devil is in the details on the directors and officers. Small changes in definitions of what is an insured can trigger exclusions. Uh, one of those exclusions that you might see is an insured versus insured exclusion, um, where a board, uh, depending on the definition, they might exclude a board member suing the board. There's no coverage for that. There, is, it's it's a very complex uh, line of coverage that really does warrant a specialist to take a look at that. Other policies. Maybe not so much because they are a little bit more cookie cutter, but there is a lot of details that go into the directors and officers policies other than just say I have a million, five million dollars in limits and I've got a, a retention of ten thousand dollars, you know. No, I think that's very interesting because I always assumed, hey, you just asked, do you have DNO and Eno? You're fine. And I uh, right. did not realize the the nuances related to that. So when you talk to nonprofits and you see in your experience over the past 10 years, um, what do they get in trouble? Sure. Uh, so board members get in trouble um, 
and negligence is found for breaching one of the three major duties, duty of care, loyalty, or obedience. Now, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get sued. That, I mean, it, there might not be a lawsuit that's brought about from a, a breach in one of those, but you couple those breaches in duty with debt, that's when you have the recipe for a lawsuit. So the vast majority of the time you see board members get in trouble is when there are financial troubles with the organization. Again, if if you if any of the board members listening today wants to write something down, ninety nine percent of the time um, there there is a lawsuit that the board members really get in trouble for. It's because there's some financial troubles, uh, and you know this can be coupled with uh, operational changes. You have layoffs. Um, uh, you can get some lawsuits from that. It can stem from new campus expansions. Hey, we're going to go ahead and build this whole new campus. And it's going to be awesome. And there's naming rights here and everybody's excited and it doesn't go as planned. But the impetus is always going in the wrong financial direction. And that's kind of reflective, actually, on how the underwriters underwrite directors and officers. The most important component of the underwriting process is those financials. And a lot of times, the, the underwriters, it's it's a thumbs up if you're in the black. If there's if there's a lot of dead and you're in the red, it's thumbs down. It becomes very difficult. So, um, you know, some of the other times you might see board members get in trouble when it's non-financial um, related is when they don't follow their bylaws exactly and they deviate. So, for example, I, I work with an accreditation organization, and prior to us getting involved, they had a $750,000 DNO lawsuit. Um, because they didn't follow their own policies and procedures. And they had a lot of change on their board of directors, but basically the doctor applying for accreditation was denied it and it set her career back four to five years. And so there's some risks. So not following things exactly will get you sued as a, as a board member. Um, other times, even when you don't, even when you follow the correct uh, policies and procedures, you still might get brought into a lawsuit. We've seen this with CFOs embezzling lots of money. Um, so you still may get in that uh, case there. But again, if you meet your duties and you stay out of financial trouble and file, follow your own bylaws and policies and procedures and you make sure there's proper oversight, you can avoid 95% of all DNO claims. Yeah, that kind of goes back to like, what is the purpose and what's, what's your role as a board of directors? Yeah, you've got government uh, governance, you've got oversight, you got financial responsibility, um, you know, the strategic direction and decision making um, of the organization and, and helping with like the fundraising and all that. If you if you follow the governance and you follow your bylaws and you keep them out of uh, financial troubles, you're going to be you're going to be OK there. And it sounds simple, wise advice. And yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet sometimes it doesn't doesn't happen as as we know and listening to this podcast we talk about governance a lot and bylaws a lot and it's interesting how quickly they become dated or stayed you know just a couple yeah. transitions of board members and then there there you go and uh, absolutely it's a wise advice on your part that you it sounds like you can mitigate your risk i don't take this to the bank but up to 95 percent great figure somewhere around there that it can be done as a board member just by doing some of the the basic blocking and tackling yeah, Michael, right. good, really, really good advice. So, so are there other ways nonprofit organizations can mitigate their risk? You've touched on several things, but just I want to make sure we haven't missed anything, either as a board member or the organization itself. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, risk mitigation again, it's it's kind of like 
risk as a whole, it's it's going to be really dependent on what type of risk there is. You know, there's a technical definition of risk uh, risk mitigation specific strategies. Uh, the biggest advice I could probably give on risk mitigation to both the organization and the board directors is consistency. So a lot of times, you know, uh, organizations they'll correctly identify what their, their their risks are and their exposures are, and they'll they'll put the appropriate weight on there of importance. Um, but the follow through is, is kind of missed sometimes. So hey, we know we've got to do ongoing cybersecurity training because we had two people fall for phishing, you know, phishing emails. And we know that we might have data that's compromised if, if this happens. So you, you set up something uh, for more training and then you get the second one done and then it falls off and it becomes a yearly thing instead of a monthly. Um, consistency in um, uh, whatever mitigation strategy you've, you've, uh, you've chosen is, is huge. And that's the same thing with board members, right? Um, the best way to mitigate your risk, just like we talked about, is consistency with following your own by bylaws and policies and procedures, you know, uh, especially if you are stepping into an organization as a board member that is struggling financially. Um, you, you can't change what already happened, but going forward as a board, you can be consistent and clear and mitigate your risk and reduce your exposure by just following what is required of you. Very, very good. But great advice right there. So let me ask you, so a, a number of the people listening are either board members or are very interested in joining nonprofit boards. What would you, what factors would, would you consider before you were to join a nonprofit board? Sure. Yeah. So um, the first thing I'm going to look at again is probably the financial stability, uh, specifically the debt <laughs> uh, of the, of the board of the organization that I'm, I'm joining. Yeah. You know, um, Again, barring anything egregious, you know, little no debt, you're you're gonna be safe as a board member. But what I would look for too is like organizational structure and uh, me personally, what what would be the expectations uh, of me as as a board member? Yeah, how am I gonna be interacting with the nonprofit? What's my role? What are they expecting me to do? If I'm asked to go ahead and head up uh, and manage the entire campus restructuring and find capital, pull them out of a six, that's probably out of the scope of what I'm comfortable with doing, you know, overextending your abilities as a board member. Uh, it's not beneficial for anybody. It's not good for you. It's not good for the, the organization. So understanding up front, like what, what am I here to do? Because nonprofit board of directors are different than for-profit board of directors. Um, you know, piggybacking off of that, you know, I'd probably take a look at the bylaws, look at the separation, the responsibilities, controls the organization has, um, and I'd look also to how I probably get along with the executive director uh, and the CEO, um, because you know that's that's who you're going to be working with, uh, and it's going to be the partnership with them. Um, on the insurance side of stuff, this is what I would look for if I'm joining a board of directors. Um, I want to make sure they have uh, um, DNO insurance, and specifically some of the things I'm going to be looking for that, without having to be an insurance expert, you you can tell off of the policy. Well, one. Defense costs being outside the limits of liability. So in a director's and officer's policy, they're going to pay for if you're found uh, negligent for uh, an incident, uh, they're going to pay a you know, million dollars, two million, five million dollars as a settlement. But there's defense costs associated with those claims. You want the defense costs to be outside the limit of liability. So if there's a million dollar claim and a half a million dollars in defense costs, well, 
you know, there's now there's going to be a half a million dollar gap because the defense costs has eroded the limits. So look for the defense costs to be outside the limits of liability and unlimited. Unlimited defense costs means the insurance company really doesn't want to be on this for a long time. Um, so two, they're carrying enough limits. Small organizations, one to two million dollars a year. Mid-sized nonprofits, around five million dollars a year. Larger nonprofits, um, it's going to be dependent, but ten million dollars per year. It's okay if you see shared limits between the employment practices and the DNO for small to mid-size. But if I'm on a nonprofit board that's got, you know, fifty million dollar, a fifty million dollar budget, you need to have those separate limits of liability because one can erode the other in class action lawsuits. Uh, and then the last thing I'm looking for is what's called a retroactive date. Um, the retroactive date is basically shows continuity of coverage. So you want that retroactive date to go back to the first time you purchased the policy um, because that's when the coverage starts. So the directors and officers uh, claims you might get something from three or four years ago. If your retroactive date starts on 1-1 of 2024, but your claim comes from 1-1 of 2023, you have no coverage. So those are three things that I would check on. Uh, you don't have to be the technical expert on definitions of insureds and, you know, how, how cross suits work and, you know, how hammer clauses and soft hammer clauses work to know, hey, I've got defense costs outside my limit. We're carrying proper limits um, and we've got continuity of coverage. Well, what a wealth of advice right there, just in a few simple statements, things that I certainly wouldn't have known and, and only experts would know, but you really position people to ask some very good questions if they're considering a board or even a current board member, maybe something you want to ask, because I would suspect in some cases, nobody knows and nobody even thinks through this unless you've got an insurance expert on the board asking those questions. I wouldn't know to ask outside of limits, a legal fee. So, Michael, that is great advice. As we're wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience about risk, about insurance, about board governance related to that? Any, any other last parting comments? So I, I think maybe just a couple of the key takeaways. All right. So uh, if I'm going to write something down and, and try to apply this um, again, you know, when do you get in trouble as a board of directors? It's when there's debt, there's financial difficulties, you don't follow the bylaw. The majority of lawsuits come from here. Your negligence as a board of directors comes from actually those breach of duties. Um, but, you know, you couple those together. That's when you really get the recipe for disaster. And yet specific to the DNO insurance, you really should have that expert reviewing it and handling it. Um, you know, some action items to maybe take away. Again, just what we talked about. If you're a board member, just request the directors and officers policy and check on those those few things: defense costs outside the limits, continuity coverage with the retroactive date, and you have per, uh, proper limits of insurance. Um, here in Florida, I would definitely stress that review of the wind insurance. I mean, I, I've seen this blow so many budgets and be such a pain point for a lot of organizations because. We're not talking about trivial dollars here. Uh, what used to be a 50 cent rate. So if you were paying $5,000 for a million dollars in coverage, it's not uncommon to be paying $25,000 for a million dollars in coverage now. I mean, we're five, six times what it was three, four years ago with deductibles that are five and 10% of the total value. So a lot of times you'll have a million dollar deductible before you can even access coverage. Um, as a board of director, if you're making the decision to scale back your wind coverage or drop it, have the proper documentation in place and really go through 
the review. Um, wind insurance is different than fire. You know, um, you're probably not going to have a full total loss of building from wind, statistically speaking. You might lose 30% or 40% if the, the, the building rips off. So really going through the math problem, the analysis of what is our actual exposure here on the wind uh, and what, what is our total cost of risk and is there a better way to manage this one risk than the insurance? It might be shoring up the building. It might be setting aside in a separate fund with some building modifications. It might be a disaster program where you have, you know, uh, contractors on call and people who are, you know, support of your organization to get it back up and running quickly. Because in this market, you know, a lot of times the wind is uh, wind insurance is not the proper risk management method for organizations. So. Uh, keeping that in mind, just of what's happening right now as a board of director uh, in Florida, that's something that pay particular attention to and just have your documentation in case something happens to where you're protected. Uh, and, and a side note on this, uh, a lot of DNO policies have what's called a, it's more technical, um, you know, failure to maintain insurance provision. Uh, your DNO policy here should only apply that to failure to maintain DNO insurance, not failure to maintain other insurances. So you can get that into those policies where, hey, if we didn't purchase enough coverage, we can't get sued for that. So, um, anyways, I, I probably leave it on those on, on those two action items. Get the DNO policy. And make sure you get documentation for when. Well, you know, what What a wealth of information from Michael Howard. Risk management, it's more than just buying insurance. It's well stated, and it's a very strategic approach to things. And for those of you who are looking to outsource that, call Michael, Michael Howard at Atlas Insurance, uh, because there's a lot more to it than meets the eye, as we just learned from today's call. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and wisdom with us. Uh, I think we're going to be much better because of it, and we appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. All right, now it's time for recapping with Reed. We just interviewed Michael Howard. Reed, what were your three takeaways? Some of the risks that nonprofit organizations need to be aware of go beyond those first and third party risks. You need to think about your emission drift being a risk, you know, any reputational damage, the political risk or climate, and then changes in funding are all risks that nonprofit organizations need to be aware of. Yeah, it's really broader than most of us think. So number two. Nonprofits are generally behind the curve when it comes to cyber liability. So if that is a large risk, you should probably get on that curve. And there you go. Get on the curve. I like that. And number three. Michael said one of the best ways that nonprofits can help mitigate the risk is just be consistent in whatever mitigation strategy they choose. So if it is cybersecurity, you know, do monthly trainings, right? And keep those consistent. Don't let it fall to an annual training and, um, you know, you allow your risk to become larger than it was planned to be. A very good point. It goes back to have an annual board calendar by month or an organizational calendar for that type of training. So there we have it. Recapping with three, read three key points. He took away from our interview with Michael Howard. And I will I501 see you next week.